Welcome to the Archives of Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Religious beliefs normally follow people as they migrate, including forced migrations. Those brought to the Western Hemisphere during the slave trading period carried their beliefs and belief systems to the diaspora of their new world. The Santeria religion, also known as Lakumi, is a belief system that originated in Africa, later brought to the Americas, and is still practiced in widely separated communities of the Western Hemisphere. Marta Moreno Vega, a Santeria priestess and university professor in New York City, is the author of The Altar of My Soul. Her book is a story of the Santeria or Lakumi religion, its traditions, and how they were brought from Africa and are practiced now. I spoke with Marta Maria Vega by phone in November of 2000, and we began our conversation when I asked her to tell us about the Santeria religion and how it differs from other religious beliefs. The divinities of the Santeria religion, which is really the Lukumi religion, uh, was developed in Cuba, and also similar religions were developed in Trinidad, in Brazil, where Yorubas were taken during the period of enslavement. Uh, the Yorubas are an ethnic group out of West Africa who were brought with many other ethnic groups uh, into the Americas during and over 400 years, you have this infusion of a tremendous number of Yorubas coming into the Americas and transforming their belief systems in the Americas. And in the case of Cuba, hiding African divinities behind Catholic images. Uh, because during enslavement, Africans were persecuted and killed uh, for practicing their African belief systems. So that the name Santeria is actually the names that were given by the Spanish enslavers because they believed that Africans were practicing their own particular type of Catholicism. And in fact, what um, Africans had done was hide different divinities behind the images of Catholic saints. How did they do this? How did they accomplish the secrecy? Well, if um, you think of the Catholic image of Santa Barbara, for example, uh, St. Barbara, she is dressed in red and white. She has a crown. She carries a sword. So she's a warrior. And what Africans did was see that their god, Shango, a warrior god, his colors in Africa and throughout the Americas was also red and white. He also carries a sword. He also has a crown because he uh, was the king of Oyo. So that they found parallels in the images of Catholic saints and used them to hide the Orishas or the Yoruba divinities behind these images. When the Yoruba religion was um, developing or evolving, if you will, in different parts of the Western Hemisphere, were you able to follow the different ways it evolved and describe for us the differences between Cuba and Brazil and the other areas that you mentioned? 
Well, um, to do that work, um, we did three international conferences, one in the birthplace of the belief system in Ife in Nigeria, what today is Nigeria. We did that in 1981. In 1983, we did the second conference in Bahia in Brazil, and the third conference in New York, where we brought practitioners and scholars together from the very traditions, trying to put together the pieces of the puzzle. What did you find? And in fact, what we found was that the similarity of uh, the tradition in all of these locations was phenomenal, that the God of creation called Obatala in Nigeria, was also called Obatala in Cuba, was called Obatala in Brazil, and as uh, people have had a second diaspora coming into the United States, have carried these traditions almost intact. So the names, the chants, the prayers, rituals uh, throughout the Americas are very similar. What is the creation story for the Yoruba religion? Well, the supreme being is called Olodumare, and Olodumare had all of the powers, and one day he got uh, restless, and he decided that he wanted to create the earth. And in creating the earth, he called upon a divinity, Obatala, to be the creator of the earth. He gave him a chain, he gave him a bag of earth, and he gave him a hen with uh, five toes. And he sent Obatala down to the abyss. All there was was water, which is the Orisha, the, per, uh, the primordial mother, Yemaya. And uh, from the chain, Obatala let go the earth, and there was a mound formed. And after that, Obatala let go the chicken and asked, or the hen, and asked the hen to scatter the dust. And as the hen walked around, the dust was scattered, the earth was scattered, and that created earth. Then Olodumare sent down a chameleon to test that the earth was solid. And when the chameleon came back up to the sky where Olodumare lived, he told Olodumare that earth was solid and earth was formed. And then Olodumare asked Obatala to return to earth and create human life. And uh, that is basically the creation story. Were you raised in the uh, Santeria religion as a child, or did is, is it something that you assumed later on in your life? Well, for most of us who are first generation, because my parents were born in Puerto Rico and uh, came to New York City in the 20s, these traditions were practiced in our homes. But what often happens, I think, with first generation children from various cultures is that their parents think that part of the progress of their children is not to instill or carry the old ways, and although my parents practiced these traditions, they did not talk about them or identify them. But throughout my childhood, I saw the altars of my grandmother and participated in helping her change the waters and placing fresh flour on the altars. Um, 
I saw my mother's altar, also prayed with my mother at her altar, received spiritual baths throughout my life, but never historically had the understanding of the connection that these traditions uh, had originated in Africa and had traveled to the Americas. You, you so talked about... You know, I... I was practicing them without even realize I was, realizing I was practicing them. Which is the way uh, most children learn uh, culture and tradition and religion. Absolutely. So, and later, as a, a researcher and a scholar, that I begin to make the connection of the objects I saw in my grandmother's home um, to objects that uh, are original to West Africa and the Yoruba people. Can you tell us about those objects and uh, how they are placed, and the role that they have on the altar? Well, for example, some of them are placed on the altar and uh, some of them are placed in other locations. For example, Elegua, which is the divinity orisha of the crossroads, opens and closes all ceremony. So that Elegua... Ogun, which is the warrior god um, that is um, the Orisha that relates to truth, because in ancient times, rather than swearing on a Bible, people of the Yoruba tradition swore on iron. And Ochosi, which is the hunter guard and goes into the forest and uh, brings back food, so that these three divinities, the implements and symbols of these three divinities, are placed generally behind the door to protect the home. Behind the front door? Behind the front door, behind the entrance door. And they're called the warriors, los guerreros. There are other divinities that are part of an altar, which, depending on your home and how you place them, generally they're placed on shelves. And um, they consist of five different divinities that have different powers. Uh, Oatala, the father of creation, that reminds us that one uh, must bring, bring clarity to the world, must bring um, the spirit of creation, Yemaya, who is the mother, um, and she represents the ocean, the concept that um, one has to be nurturing, one has to protect children and nurture children because they are our future. And generally, Oshun, who is the goddess of relationships, the goddess of community, and is represented by the lake. So that generally, the different Orishas are placed on shelves, and they could be very decorative or specially designed shelves to house um, these divinities. Marta, I want to ask you about uh, how the divinities and the identification of them uh, were transferred to America during the slave trade. But first, I want to tell our listeners that this week we're talking with uh, Professor Marta Moreno-Vega, the author of a new book called The Altar of My Soul, The Living Traditions of Santeria a religion that was brought to the Western Hemisphere during the time of uh, the slave trade from Africa. Tell us about how it was brought over um, and the parts of it that perhaps have not survived that you've been able to identify from a historian's perspective. Well, um, these traditions survive because clearly people have faith and believe in them. 
And part of initiation is that the body becomes the temple of your divinity. And therefore, when people were brought, brutally brought from West Africa, they brought memory. They brought their traditions and were able to recreate their traditions in the Americas. And what you find is variation because geographically and uh, based on the conditions that people found in various areas, they were able to maintain certain practices and others they were not able to maintain. We find, for example, that whole villages were torn out of Africa and brought into the Americas. And in the tradition uh, as it originated in Africa, whole villages were dedicated or devoted to one divinity. So, for example, in Abiyakuta, the divinity that most of the uh, citizenry was devoted to was Yemaya. However, when Africans were brought into the Americas and torn from their villages, oftentimes different villages uh, found themselves on the same ships and were distributed uh, throughout the Americas, not as villages, but as a mixture of peoples from different areas. So that what you find in Cuba and Brazil is that opposed to the system that existed in Africa where villages were devoted to one divinity. In the Americas, you see practitioners have an understanding of all of the divinities. Um, In my research, I found that in Cuba, uh, the elder practitioners tell the story that Africans in Cuba had to um, come together as a unit because there was never enough initiates of one divinity to recreate the system that existed in West Africa. So what they did was create another system, which was bringing together the different divinities. And initiation encompasses um, the receiving of various orishas as opposed to receiving one or two. As in the African system, in the Americas you could receive five, three, depending on the area and the system that you're initiating into. Marta, in your book, uh, you have, uh, in the introduction, a section that talks about the initiation. And I wonder if you could read that for us, please. Through initiation into my religion, one is reborn. It is a conscious act of letting go of negative influences that weigh down the spirit, allowing it to soar and embark on a new beginning. The energy that naturally flows from the initiation opens up inner channels, granting the initiate the ability to see, feel, smell, taste, and sense more accurately, and to be more present in the world. By combining my knowledge of the spiritual and the secular worlds, I have found a universe that unveils all of its wisdom and beauty before me. Like the great Santeria goddess, of the ocean, Yemaya, who lives both in the ocean and on the earth, we must avail ourselves of all the natural treasures of both worlds. Can you tell us about your initiation as a Yoruba priestess? Well, um, in my journey and in my studies and uh, bringing together my childhood experiences with my studies, I realized and was drawn Uh, to the Orisha tradition as it is practiced in Cuba. And in 1981, 
went to Havana, Cuba, and initiated with uh, two elder priests that became and are my mentors in the tradition. And um, the process of initiation is one of accepting that the divinities represent nature's forces, that in order for us to live in balance with nature, we must be one with nature, and in fact uh, accept that we must protect that which gives us life. We cannot pollute the ocean. We cannot pollute the earth. We cannot pollute the air that we breathe and disrespect that which gives us life. And initiation is an acceptance of that. It's an exception of how you live present in the world, are concerned about issues that affect our communities. We have to be uh, concerned about homelessness, about education, about how we live our lives daily. It is a system that uh, insists that you are present in the world and you have your um, thoughts and actions support and heal your community. Does that help? Certainly, certainly. Would it be fair to say that your attempt um, to heal the community, your community, our community, um, is part of why you wrote your book and you're traveling around now talking about it? Absolutely, because I think that we forget that um, we have to live in balance with nature, that which gives us life. And Santeria, or the Lukumi tradition, is not very different from other religions that ex- that accept uh, that we are part of nature and must live in balance um, with the energies of nature. So that, um, yes, it relates to my community, let's say the Latino, Afro-Latino community in the Caribbean, Central America, and Latin America, but it's all so very close to Native American traditions and Native traditions in the Americas. It's so similar to Asian religions that um, believe in the earth and European-American religions that also worship and understand the importance of earth's energy. So uh, it's not so different. Maybe the names of the divinities are different uh, because clearly they originated in West Africa, but the principles and concepts are very similar to other systems. Marta, I'd like you to tell us a little bit about your life as assistant professor at the City University of New York's Baruch College, mm-hmm. what you teach, uh, how you find the students-to-be. Well, um, I teach Latin American history, Caribbean history, and Puerto Rican history and culture. Um, students, I think are all searching not only for um, success in their personal, uh, professional lives, right, but they're also seeking how their experiences are part of world history. And uh, the courses I teach focus on areas that are often ignored um, in global history discussion. Which are those areas that are often Latin ignored? Latin America, the Caribbean generally are not looked at in depth, they're generally glossed over, um, maybe very quickly looking at native populations, uh, the major native populations in Latin America, 
and very little is talked about the impact of African traditions in Latin America and the Caribbean, and certainly how Latin America uh, influences the United States and its contributions to the United States. Considering that Spanish is the third most popularly spoken language in the world, the third uh, most popular native language, why do you uh, think that the traditions of Latin America are ignored in these courses of study and in uh, the general economy of the world? Because I think that um, the world is still very Eurocentric, and curriculums in uh, university and and in um, higher education continue to be very Eurocentric in their perspective. From the 60s forward, because of the different movements, Native movements, African-American movements, Latino movements, Asians having their uh, presence felt, we're now getting uh, more... Uh, inclusive, historical, and global view uh, being presented in the curriculum. If one were to travel through Latin America, you would see the um, modernization and uh, the advertisements of what is shown on American and probably European television, Mm -hmm. um, a homogenation, which in a way I think um, makes less of the South American cultures. Absolutely. Absolutely. You can't we can't deny that um the impact of multinational corporations and the pushing of product find themselves throughout the world. But I think also that Latin America because of the economic uh reality of most of its population is still very grounded and not able to afford the onslaught of many of the products that are being introduced. And also you have the reality that um, Spain was in the United States before European presence. And there is a very sort of deep history of Latino culture in the United States. And increasingly with the population of uh, Latinos going back and forth to their country, settling here, returning to Mexico, returning to Puerto Rico, Santo Domingo, and so on and so forth, you have uh, increased Latinization of the United States and other areas. Um, when I went to England recently, I was surprised. I mean, the music being played, uh, many of the um, songs on the radio were Caribbean rhythms, you know, and Latin American rhythms, so that you have a cross-pollinization that is very interesting. How do you foresee the uh, flowering of this cross-pollinization in the next 50 or 100 years? Well, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I think we're seeing the flowering now, as, um, and especially I think that artists, are always at the cutting edge and see, and as visionaries, see beyond what I think the ordinary person sees. And you can begin to see in music uh, the inclusion of music from and instruments from throughout the world in many of the U.S. artists. You're beginning to see the influence of the world in many of the Latino artists. And although they use their culture as the center, 
you know, there is a greater inclusion of the rhythms of the world. And I think that you will also see that in food, and then you will see it in style, and then you will see it in thinking, you know, so that as people learn more about the world, they'll begin to borrow. How do you see it in relationship to travel and immigration? Well, travel, uh, because of the uh, low cost of traveling relatively compared to, let's say, 15, 20 years ago, there's an increased travel um, between Latin America and the United States. Most of the students that I've taught are students from Latin America who are now residing in the United States while they are completing their education. Many of them stay, although they had intended to go back, so that you see an infusion of talent from Latin America and the Caribbean coming into the United States, as well as you see many uh, students of, uh, of U.S. origin wanting to go to other areas and other countries to develop their professions. So that um, if I use my students as a gauge, I, I think something very wonderful is happening, that people are not afraid to travel, people are not afraid to call other locations home, and are looking for opportunities um, outside the borders of the United States. And uh, the issue of migration and immigration is certainly increasing, because as borders and technology brings down borders, uh, we must definitely become a global people. And I don't say that in the sense that one culture should dominate what that globalness will be, because oftentimes when we talk about globalization, we see it as U.S.-centered, and I think that it should not be U.S.-centered. Well, Marta, I would like to talk with you more, but we're coming to the close of our time. And before we do close, I'd like you to tell us about an interesting book that you've read lately. Well, right now I'm reading the book of uh, Robert Farris Thompson, Faces of the Gods. And it's a book that came out of a catalog that talks about the altars of the Orisha tradition throughout the world and the continuities of these traditions, tracing these traditions throughout the uh, Caribbean, Latin America, Africa, and uh, the United States. Uh, a beautiful book. How is his book different than yours? Well, his is more a scholarly study, an objective study. Mine is a very personal journey, a memoir, and um, it sort of crosses teaching about the tradition, talking about how the tradition came into my life and how it's influenced my life. So it's more a very personal perspective that I bring to my book. Thank you very much for joining us on Radio Curious. Thank you. This was a wonderful conversation. Thank you so much. Marta Moreno-Vega is the author of The Altar of My Soul. The book that she recommends is The Face of the Gods, Art and Altars of Africa and the African Americans by Robert F. Thompson. Copies of this and other editions of Radio Curious can be found on our website, www.radiocurious.org. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org. 
And I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 707-621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.